The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 8 through 10. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Am I coming through the house, Jason? Praise the Lord. Okay, I can't tell sometimes. Praise God. In those days, St. Matthew tells us, John the Baptist appeared, is one way the verse can be translated, preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Very similar to how Elijah suddenly arrives to confront Ahab in 1 Kings 17. So also the son of the formerly barren Elizabeth appears in the wilderness. And this is not the only similarity with Elijah. When John the Baptist appears, he's seen wearing Elijah's uniform, you might say. A garment of camel's hair, a leather belt around his waist, which is how Elijah is described in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8. John also chooses the Jordan River as the location of his repentance revival. The same river Elijah crossed, if you'll remember, before being swept up by the fiery chariots of Israel and its horsemen. So for a child of Abraham looking for the kingdom of God, the final verses of Malachi might have been ringing in their ears at John's appearance, where Yahweh, the God of Israel, says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Elijah, it seems, has returned. And the first word out of his mouth is what? Repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heaven's kingdom, God's reign, Yahweh's rule. It's drawing near. It's at hand. At hand. We don't really use that phrase as much anymore, do we? People don't usually say, your Uber is at hand. Uh, unless they're a theater major and can't help themselves, which is understandable. We're more likely to say, I think your ride is on its way, or um, your ride's here, or something like that. So, how would it feel, how would it feel as a child of Abraham <coughs> to hear the returned Elijah announce that Yahweh's rule is at hand? Well, when I think of the long, lonesome wait for the arrival of God's kingdom, I think of Simeon and Anna. Do we remember Simeon and Anna? When our Lord is presented as a child in the temple in Luke chapter 2, the aged Simeon, who knew his eyes would not be closed by death until he'd lain those eyes on the consolation of Israel, he takes up the son of Mary in his arms and blesses God, saying, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. Or Anna, the prophetess, 
84 years old, um, spent much of her life as a widow, who fasted and prayed night and day in the temple. Scripture says that she comes up at that very hour to find the hopes and fears of all the years met in the child Jesus, the Nazarene. Eight and a half decades of waiting is a lot of waiting. But then, all at once, redemption appears. A voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Our father Abraham came right to the edge of a century before he saw the child of promise. The promise that had given Sarah such a laugh. Jacob had gone blind with age, grieving over Rachel's firstborn before he could bless Joseph's children. The prophet Daniel carefully counted out the 70 years of exile before Gabriel appeared to let him know it would be another five centuries before the transgression was finished, sin found an end, and everlasting righteousness would be brought in. So for God's people to hear that Yahweh's reign was at hand, the rain that would fill the earth with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea? Well, you'd make that drive to the Jordan yourself. And many did. Back to the beginning. Back where Joshua first brought them into the promised land by crossing the Jordan. They went back to the wilderness, perhaps to see if the return of Elijah would be followed by the return of a new Joshua. My father knows a little bit about wilderness. When he finished college in the 70s, the echo of Go West Young Man could still be felt. So my dad drove out to Oregon to be a firefighter, of all things. I've only ever gotten sparse details from him, but as a kid, I always imagined him tearing through forest fires in the Oregon wilderness, side by side with Smokey the Bear, with shovels in hand, you know. Only you can prevent forest fires, was their cry. I had this kind of romantic view of my dad's time out in Oregon, and dad must have thought fondly of it himself, so much so that 20 years later he somehow convinces himself to drag his poor wife and three adolescent boys back out into the Wild West for a family vacation. Well, let me tell you, Yellowstone is a long drive from Demopolis, Alabama. All right? Especially when you're 14 years old, all you've got is a stack of Louis L'Amour cassette tapes to pass the time. There's only so many ways you can write about cowboys on the frontier. Louis always found another way. Praise the Lord. Needless to say, the return to the wilderness did not exactly live up to those romantic visions of my dad fighting fires in Oregon. The children of Abraham may also have found not quite what they expected when they flocked to the voice in the wilderness. Repent, he tells them. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. According to Luke, when people asked for details about this, this cry, John tells them, whoever has two tunics is to share one with him who has none. Same with food. Wait, so Elijah's back. Right? The guy who called down fire on Mount Carmel cut down 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah, and his great message to us is that we should share more, to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly before our God. This is the preparation for Yahweh's reign, the kingdom of God. We want David. 
We want Solomon. We want armies and palaces and to be the fear of the nations. What kind of kingdom is this? There's something I've discovered the times I've been blessed to seek counsel from holy people. They almost always give really boring advice. Just painfully practical advice. Like, if I don't have time to pray in the morning, maybe I should wake up earlier. If waking up early is hard, maybe I should go to bed earlier. These revelations, you know. If watching something on TV tempts you to sin, don't watch it. I mean, I want to be on Mount Sinai when I talk to these men and women. I want to be on Mount Tabor or Mount Carmel. I want to see the uncreated light be enveloped in the cloud of God's glory, pass through earthquakes and fire, make three tents, one for Moses, one for Elijah, one for our Lord. But of course, I often don't know what I'm saying. And all the while, the saints just keep repeating the words of Jesus to me about loving my enemies, praying, fasting, giving, worshiping in spirit and truth. Almost as if the way that needs to be prepared begins in our hearts and minds. Repent. Metanoia is to be converted, to change your mind, to assent to a radical reorientation in the way you understand everything. A reorientation that is warranted by the arrival of a king. Remember, there is a kingdom that is at hand. It's right outside the door. If it were a snake, it would have bit you. It's right there. And the voice crying in the wilderness says, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. But we see in verse 7 of Matthew chapter 3, just like last time the Israelites were in the wilderness, here comes the snakes. Remember the snakes? Here they come. Brood of vipers, John indelicately says. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And John anticipates their appeal to their genealogy. Don't deceive yourself. Don't fool yourself. Don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Abraham. The creator can take dead old rocks and make for himself children of Abraham. Just like in Luke 19.40, following the temple's cleansing, when the Pharisees scold Jesus for letting his disciples sing kingdom hymns, and Jesus says, I tell you, if these were silent, very stones would cry out. No one, John is telling them, is exempt from the call for repentance being announced by the king's herald. No more warnings, no more prophets or crooked shepherds. Yahweh is coming himself. And as snakes often flee from felled trees, John warns those Pharisees and Sadducees, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. You put an axe at the roots, you're not looking to prune anymore. You are looking to uproot. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is at the door. My poor wife, Laura, there she is. She's had to endure many things, not least of which is being married to me. But one day, I, I heard the laugh. 
But one day, she called me in a panic, unlike I'd ever heard before in all our years of marriage. Between her sobs, I could barely make out that, number one, I had to come home immediately, because, number two, the garage was full of snakes. So that was enough for me. I was like, all right, you know, got it. Message received. So I raced home. Now, our washer and dryer at our house is in the garage, so between caring for and homeschooling our precious children, my wife went out to rotate the laundry and did not realize she was walking up on a six-foot snake. Yeah. Until it began hissing at her when she nearly stepped on it, mere inches away. So after leaping back inside at a rate which I assume approached the speed of light, um, she peeked out of the door to see it was not one snake, but two snakes, and they appeared to be husband and wife, (laughs) engaged in an attempt to obey the good Lord's commands to be fruitful and multiply, (laughs) which is, of course, simply the most horrific thing you could ever dream of finding in your garage while you're rotating your laundry. So, I came home to kill some snakes. Turns out, snakes do not want to be killed. They're darn good at hiding in every conceivable crevice. They they can contort their bodies and fit up in the the tiniest spaces. I proceeded to spend that morning tearing our garage apart literally turning our washer and dryer and everything else upside down to get those snakes. Thanks be to God, Father. I got them eventually. I got them. Praise the Lord. But our garage was leveled in the process. Well, in Isaiah chapter 11, we heard earlier about the stump of Jesse. But in the verses right before Isaiah 11, we are told how The Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest, excuse me, with an axe. The forest is laid waste. All the snakes scurry away until all that remains is a stump. But from Jesse's stump, branch. The branch that bears fruit. But if every tree, if every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, who among us will be able to endure the day of his coming? Who will stand when he appears? Because of course, apart from him, we are all fruitless trees in autumn twice dead, uprooted. What hope? What hope do we have? The prophet Isaiah, known by some as the fifth evangelist, proclaims our miraculous hope in Isaiah 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. Our Lord Jesus is the rock that was struck in the wilderness to bring forth water for his people. He is the rose of Sharon, 
the lily of the valley. His is the only acceptable, fragrant offering. And apart from His grace, there is simply no health in us. But just as branches can be grafted into a new vine, on the cross, Christ's side was split open, pouring out water and blood that we might be grafted in, that we might take refuge in the cleft of the rock and be spared from the wrath to come. This is our hope. And it's a hope that fulfills the promise to our father Abraham that in his offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. The shoot from Jesse's stump we read and we heard in Isaiah 11 will not judge by what his eyes see. He doesn't see the tassels or, the, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Beloved, he's coming back. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the voice still cries in the wilderness, prepare, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. And repentance is still the posture we must adopt before the approach of the king. No one is exempt. Each and every individual must be immersed in the waters of repentance, must reorient themselves before Yahweh's Messiah. And confessing our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And being joined to the vine, we can finally bear fruit. For apart from him, we can do nothing. But let us heed the voice. Prepare the way. The time is short. Each of us has far less time than we realize. Behold, I'm coming soon, the Lord Jesus says in the last chapter of Revelation, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and they may enter the city by its gates. He's coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.